Hey, Cloud Unfiltered listeners. For those of you that are paying close attention, you're going to notice that this episode claims to be the first of our KubeCon series. And in fact, it was the first one we recorded. However, it is not the first one we played. After recording them, I decided to go ahead and play them back in a little bit different order, depending on how timely the subject was, how relevant it was to the ongoing KubeCon event. So just know we recorded eight episodes while we were there, and I'm going to parcel them out over the next few weeks. So you're going to keep hearing about KubeCon and how we're at KubeCon slash CloudNativeCon, but we are not anymore. We are simply enjoying the fabulous content that the event generated. So thank you for your patience with my uh, organizing choices. Here we go. We're going to listen to episode number two from the KubeCon 2019 series. afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are today. This is Ali Amagasu, welcoming you to the KubeCon series, the 2019 KubeCon series of the Cloud Unfiltered podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be doing a number of episodes over the next couple days, and I am sorry to say my podcast co-host, Pete Johnson, will not be with me. I will be hobbling along uh, on my own, so please forgive any lack of technical depth. Pete is in his nerd lair in northern Michigan, refusing to come out here because planes are too small for someone of his stature. We miss you, Pete. Anyway, I am thrilled with the caliber of guests that we've got this week. My first guest this week is Toby Knaup. He's the CTO and co-founder of D2IQ. If that doesn't sound familiar to you, that's okay. This company used to be Mesosphere. Welcome, Toby. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's start off with the elephant in the room. Why is Mesosphere now D2IQ? Yeah, so we did a, a big product launch this summer. In fact, it was not just a product launch, we launched a whole bunch of services and, and other things. And um, you know, we, when we started the company about seven years ago, Mesos, Apache Mesos was the first open source project we worked with. But very early on, we, we also started working with other open source projects like uh, Apache Spark, Kafka, Cassandra. And then for a few years now, we've also been working with Kubernetes. And so oftentimes when people saw the Mesosphere name, they put us in that, in that Mesos box. They said, "Yo, oh, they're the Mesos guys. But the fact is we're doing a lot more than Mesos, right, including Kubernetes. And so it just became uh, kind of this anchor that was holding us back that put us in a specific box. And so we wanted to change the company name to something that describes a lot better what we actually do. And that is helping people uh, be successful with day two operations. Ah, uh, that's the D2. That's right. Got it. Got it. That was mysterious to me until right this moment. So why did you guys move into Kubernetes? Was that an organic thing driven by your customer needs? It it was, yeah. So when um, when, uh, Google launched Kubernetes uh, very early on, you know, we looked at it, our team checked it out, and we actually um, entered a a partnership with Google early on that same summer when uh, when Kubernetes was announced and uh, started contributing to it. We wanted to make it work on top of Apache Mesos. In Apache Mesos, we have this idea of um, a two-level scheduler, uh, which is essentially you're saying, you know, you're separating the concerns of managing an application, all that, you know, application-specific logic from sort of the substrate. And so it it made sense to us to bring Kubernetes on top of Apache Mesos next to our own container orchestrator, uh, which is called Marathon. And so we started working on that. We were actually a large contributor to uh, Kubernetes in, in, you know, 1.0 around that time. And over the years, started started doing more in that community and, and building more products. 
it was actually always part of our vision for the company to be sort of this evergreen technology partner for our customers. We realized that uh, technologies change, right? And uh, especially in the open source cloud native ecosystem, there's new projects popping up all the time and, and uh, our customers want to learn to leverage those. And so we're very open to, to um, you know, bringing on Kubernetes and, and you know, this year did a really big push and, and came out with an entire product line around it. Um, helping people you know, sort of get started with the first project all the way to managing many different Kubernetes clusters across an organization. That is a terrific segue. I understand you guys recently made a big announcement associated right. with this event. What was it? Go ahead and tell us about it. Yeah, so we announced a new product that's called Commander, um, and it's you know, the latest product in our uh, what we call K-Sphere. It's our Kubernetes product line. So I should mention that, actually. So we rebranded the company. Um, we're also keeping Mesosphere as a name for our product line around Mesos. So that's still there, lives on. And KSphere is our name for the Kubernetes product line. Uh, Commander, latest product in there. And uh, really uh, where it sits is it solves all those uh, day two operations challenges that organizations face once they get beyond a single Kubernetes cluster. So running, multi-cluster, and uh, that's, that's very common. Um, we, we often see, you know, Organizations typically start with Kubernetes uh, running a bunch of different microservices that they built internally. Then they add more sophisticated workloads like data services. And Kubernetes often gets developed, um, sorry, gets adopted by developers and, and then kind of spreads organically in the organization. And so very quickly, uh, enterprises find themselves managing dozens or even hundreds of Kubernetes clusters across various different teams, various different product lines, various different substrates, multiple cloud providers data centers, edge locations. And so there's, there's a whole host of, of challenges around that. How do you keep those clusters secure? How do you set the right policies, like access control rules on those clusters? How do you distribute secrets across those clusters or any, any other kind of configuration? How do you govern which workloads people can run on these clusters? So there's a whole set of these problems uh, in addition to, well, how do you stand those clusters up in the first place? How do you upgrade them? And uh, so that's the space where the commander plays in. It's, it's helping organizations manage multiple Kubernetes clusters across any type of infrastructure. So is commander set up to work well with certain, say, security elements and certain storage elements? And in other words, is there is there almost a, you know, a blueprint for it where you have it already kind of mapped out anyway? Like a template? Yes. Yeah. So. Um, when you start using Commander, the first thing you see is this concept of a, of a project. So that's a way to group different clusters together. And, um, and then what it allows you to do is, is to manage any type of Kubernetes configuration within, within that project consistently. Right? So let's say, for instance, you have um, a couple of microservices and they need to connect to your production database. Mm -hmm. So you want to store your database secret, uh, you know, the, the password to connect to that production database in a secure way, and then only make it available to those production clusters that should have access to the production database. You don't want to make that available to some development clusters, right? Because the production database most likely has sensitive data in it. So uh, with Commander, you can do that. So you can say, you know, I'm going to define a project. It includes these clusters. And then you create a secret, and then Commander will make that secret available just on these production clusters that are part of this project. Secrets are one example. The same goes for any uh, type of other configuration. So access control rules, config maps, the Kubernetes concept um, to, to disseminate any, any type of configuration. And then also the workloads that people can run. So Commander includes a catalog. 
that uh, customers can curate, so they can they can take the catalog that we provide, it includes a whole bunch of workloads from ourselves and from our partners, but they can publish their own workloads too and then curate that. So say for instance, I wanna make sure that any cluster that runs in production uses a specific version of um, say Apache Kafka, right? A specific version that I ran through my internal certification process, right? Where I made sure that it meets all my organization's security requirements, that it's compliant, uh, that it's stable, right? So you can, as a customer, bless that version essentially, make it available in the catalog for those production clus uh, clusters. At the same time, you have you know your developers that want to use the latest and greatest features in Kafka, so they probably a version ahead or two of what you want to run in production. So with Commander, you can manage that as well. You just curate a catalog with a different set of workloads for your development clusters with the latest and greatest versions and then only make that catalog available to the development clusters. So those are some of the key features. So there's a lot of flexibility there. So would you say something like Commander is more useful to the developers that are kind of the ones who usually kind of grab onto Kubernetes first or to the operators who ultimately wind up having to manage this hot mess that the developers create? Yeah, so our vision for Commander is really we want to strike a balance between the needs of developers and the needs of you know central IT or cloud infrastructure teams that, that are responsible for governance. Uh, what's so powerful about Kubernetes is that it really it enables developers, right? It gives them self-service access to infrastructure. It gives it enables that agility that most enterprises want to want to get. So, but at the same time, an enterprise needs to follow their governance rules, right? They need to be compliant. They need a way to upgrade those clusters quickly when there's security issues. And so Commander tries to strike that balance, right? You can, as an operations team, as an infrastructure team, give every development team their own clusters, one or many. So it's like, you know, they get their own sandbox. They can play within that sandbox. They can launch their own applications. They don't need to talk to central IT about that. They can install their own workloads. Uh, but at the same time, Commander is the single pane of glass for, for IT or for the infrastructure team that tells them, what are all my clusters out there? How big are they? What's running on them? Do they still have capacity? Are they compliant, right? Are they, which version are they running? Am I running any Kubernetes version out there that has security issues, right? People need to upgrade those clusters very quickly to, to stay current um, and, and the additional workloads that are, that are on there. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's really the, the vision for Commander is, is striking that, that balance. You know, we had a guest on recently who spoke about the concept of, I'm sure you're familiar with the pets versus cattle analogy. Right. And he argued that, yes, we've gotten over treating our servers as pets, right. but that now we're treating Kubernetes clusters as pets. <laughs> would you agree with that? And, and, and would, would you agree that there's a concern with that, or is it okay to treat Kubernetes clusters as pets? Yeah, it's interesting because there are, um, there are sort of different approaches to, to this, to how people yeah. manage the clusters and, and how they deploy them. So, you know, obviously Kubernetes came out of Google and um, it's inspired by Google Borg, you know, their, their internal container platform. Apache Mesos uh, share some similarities with, uh, with Borg as well. So what we saw with Apache Mesos, and, and from what I know, that's how, how Google runs internally too, is you typically see a fairly small number of fairly large clusters deployed in an organization with Apache Mesos. So that's typically, you know, in a physical data center location, you have, you know, two, maybe three clusters, or, you know, per cloud region, you only have a small number. You don't see the model that commonly where every single product team or every development team gets their own clusters. Mm -hmm. So small number of large clusters, you know, that are shared, there's 
multi-tenancy and, and things like that. And so obviously those large clusters, you treat them like pets, right? Those, those are, in terms of size, those are in the thousands of nodes often. Um, you, know, so you can't just be replicating that and then putting right. a bullet in the head of the old cluster. That, that's exactly right. It, it just physically takes a lot of time to rebuild that, that cluster with, say, you know, 30,000 machines. And, and we do have customers that are at that scale. Wow. So yeah, that's that's one approach. But what you see most commonly with Kubernetes, though, is I guess it's not exactly the the cattle approach. But but yeah, we see a, a larger number of smaller clusters, right? So every single dev team will have their development cluster, their staging cluster, their production cluster, their own little sandbox. They don't share it with other teams. And so um, because the scope of these clusters is uh, smaller, it's also easier to rebuild them, easier to treat them like cattle. Although I would say that. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of organizations that, even when they have these small clusters, would you know treat the production cluster like, like cattle. Um, they tend to to upgrade those, you know, in, instead of rebuilding them. And and in, in fact, you know, that's that's one of the features of uh, Commander as well is helping people upgrade those clusters to a new version uh, without disrupting workloads on top. So it sounds like you're saying in some cases that it's worth whatever, or in many cases actually with clusters anyway, it's worth the effort to treat them like pets. That's right. Yeah. It's just, it's typically a lot of work to set up a cluster, to set up the base infrastructure. We try to make it very easy. With Commander and Convoy, you can actually provision um, a Kubernetes cluster, including all the add-ons like networking, in about 10 minutes or so. So it's very fast. But at the same time, you know, you need to tie that cluster into other systems. You need to set up the operating system underneath. So there's there's just a lot of work. And, you know, I'd say for, for development, yes, people, people are rebuilding clusters all the time. For production, less so. Makes sense. Good answer. So we've talked a little bit about um, D2IQ specifically and Commander. Let's talk a little more generally right now about Kubernetes. It sounds like you and your company are profoundly involved in contributing to probably Kubernetes directly and other a number of other CNCF projects. What would you say is the most important or exciting development lately within CNCF? Is there something that's changing the game, is forcing you guys to rethink the way you do things in a good way or a bad way? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of active discussion right now around Kubernetes operators, right? So um, operators, they're not a new concept. Um, I think uh, it was the original blog post was published in 2016. Um, and so operators uh, are essentially a way to manage more complex workloads on top of Kubernetes that you know have their own life cycles, their fairly fairly advanced life cycles. And uh, so one of the discussions that's happening in the CNCF right now is actually, well, what is an operator? Um, there's different definitions of that, of what should be the scope of an operator. We're actively involved in that. We have an open source project that's called Kudo. That's a toolkit or an SDK for building Kubernetes operators. There's other approaches too. Um, you know, there's operator SDK, there's uh, Builder, there's controller runtime. There's other projects that allow you to build operators in different programming languages than Go. What we do with Kudo is we allow you to build an operator with uh, just YAML configuration. You actually don't have to write any code. So there's these various different approaches, and and I think you know people are really looking at at getting a, a good definition for what is an operator, how do we publish these things, how do we update these things, how do they interact, how do they integrate, because you know operators can have dependencies too. Um, we do a lot of work around big data and data-heavy workloads, so Kafka is an important workload to us. Kafka has a dependency on Zookeeper, right? So um, to, to run that in a production environment, you would need a Kafka operator, you would need a Zookeeper operator. Now, how do you manage that dependency, right? So those are all 
questions that are that are out there that are being discussed in the in the CNCF right now um, that we're involved in. And what do you hear from your customers regarding um, the CNCF projects in general? Are they coming to you asking for specific things that either their are, projects aren't addressing yet, or are they, or do you find that often projects are addressing them, the customers don't know that yet, and you need to educate them a little bit? Yeah. So what we find most commonly is so. We, we work with a lot of um, enterprise customers, often you know, large-scale or global 2000 companies. They have, you know, they have savvy development teams. They look at the cloud-native landscape. They look at all the projects in there. People try them out. They do a tutorial online. They have a great experience. And so often customers come to us and they say, you know, I want to do Kubernetes and I want to use Prometheus for monitoring and I want to use Grafana dashboards. So they do have those projects um, selected. They have you know, certain, certain projects on their, on their list. But then what we also find is that almost everybody also has some gaps, right? So maybe they didn't think about how they do access control. Maybe they didn't think about how they do log management yet, right? So, so that's where we get involved. We have a Kubernetes distribution that's called Convoy, which ties together a lot of the different CNCF projects into a production-grade stack. So it's Kubernetes plus a monitoring stack plus networking, all, all the other pieces that you need. So we help them basically, you know, make those technology decisions uh, because that's really hard, right? There's I think over 600 projects now in the CNCF landscape. Yeah, it is. That's impossible for most organizations to navigate and to make technology decisions on, and most importantly, to also maintain that, right? So day two in our company name also stands for well, how do you keep that stack up to date? And, and we actually did an analysis. We looked at all the components that are in our Kubernetes distribution in, in Convoy. And over a period of, of about six months uh, earlier this year, those projects combined did 187 releases. I because believe they're, that. <laughs> they're independent projects, right? They each have their own schedule. So that's impossible for most organizations to keep up with. So they come to us um, to help them with that because we do that maintenance work, right? We, launch, we run a lot of testing every month. We pick the latest versions of those projects that fix important security issues and bugs. We put them together on our test infrastructure and we actually simulate real world workloads, make sure all those different versions work together and are current. So I'd say that's a, that's a big part. The other part too is, well, how do you make these open source projects enterprise grade, right? These, these, a lot of these things solve very important issues and they solve them really well. But uh, there's always these enterprise environment and environments that have, say, regulatory requirements or other things that the open source project doesn't meet. So we help them with that. You know, we add, we add those things. We make sure they can, they can pass their, their regulatory requirements. And then probably the most important thing, though, that um, people come to us for is actually just understanding the cloud-native space and getting educated. We have this map that we call the cloud native journey, and every organization is somewhere on that journey from just learning about the space, what are containers, what is cluster management, all the way to you know how do I run hundreds of Kubernetes clusters across my organization. Everyone's somewhere on that spectrum, and we have different you know, training offerings. We do on-site classes, virtual classes, uh, all kinds of things to just help people get educated um, about uh, cloud native, because it's obviously it's a big space. There's lots of technologies, um, and, and it's very new to, to a lot of organizations. Where are most companies on that spectrum that you deal with? Yeah, I'd say most companies that we deal with are now, they've made the decision that Kubernetes is the substrate they want to build on. 
So they have projects going on with Kubernetes. They often have dev environments already set up. Mm -hmm. And they're on the verge to going into production, or maybe they're already in production with a small project, but then sort of notice, oh, wait a minute, there's some gaps, right? We don't really know how to scale this up. We don't really know how to do non-disruptive upgrades. So, so I'd say that's where most organizations are. They've made their bet on Kubernetes, mm -hmm. they're ready to go to production, or they're ready to scale up in production, and, and that's when they come talk to us. That's most companies, though, that you guys see, right, or right. that we see, because I was thinking about it. I mean, there's probably a number of companies who aren't even on your bell curve yet because maybe they sent, for the first time, they're sending some developers or That's right. IT operators to this conference. And That's these right. guys come away, and their minds are blown, and they're excited, but they, haven't, they don't know what to do with all that information yet, right? Correct. And then there's another group that's even further to the left-hand side yeah. that those guys haven't even been sent to the conference yet. They like it. They're experimenting with it. Their company has said, we're not messing with that. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be who knows how many years before those poor guys even get in the in the game. I feel like there's so much reward to be had, but you it's it's a it's a hill to climb to get there to get that reward, you know, up front. So yeah, I, I, it, I find it very interesting when I whenever I make an assumption about when I make assumptions about their understanding of Kubernetes or anything surrounding the whole CNCF ecosystem, I'm often surprised how far to the left side they are in that discussion. No, I, I totally agree. And it's, you know, I think we have to, those of us who've been in the space for a couple of years now, I think we have to remember that it's actually still early days for cloud native as a whole. For most organizations, it is early days. And um, you know, one of the things we're doing too is we're doing these um, field events, so free Kubernetes trainings, free Kubernetes classes, sort of the 101, doing those in all the major cities and internationally in Europe and Asia too. Those are wildly popular events. We get a you know big attendance and and predominantly those are the folks that are new to the space that are just you know trying to understand what are containers, what is Kubernetes. Cool. Well is there anything else you'd like to cover while you're chatting with me today? We could talk about sort of CICD Argo Flux. Yeah, let's talk about CICD Argo Flux. What is there to, what is there to know there? What's interesting that's going on in that space? Yeah, so so CI/CD continuous integration, continuous delivery. Um, what we see is that it's often sort of the first workload that companies deploy on their Kubernetes clusters after they do their initial experimentation with their own microservices. Right? They want to build their software delivery pipeline, their software factory, and um, there's a lot of choice, right, in the CI/CD space. There is uh, Jenkins that's been it's been around for a long time. Still, I believe, the most popular choice among enterprises for doing CI-CD. Uh, we support it. But there's a, a lot of traction recently around the GitOps workflow for CI-CD and uh, some really uh, exciting open source projects uh, spinning up. And I think uh, just a few days ago, Argo and Flux, two of the projects in the space, announced that they're going to be collaborating and, and, and merging the projects. So there's a lot of activity. There and, and, and naturally, you know, that's what customers ask us to do too is to help them set up CI CD. So, we also have an, an upcoming project that we're really excited about. It's called Dispatch. So, it ties together some of the leading uh, open source projects in the CI CD space and, and sort of makes it ready for an enterprise environment. Um, you need multiple different projects for, for a CI CD pipeline. We integrate that sort of similar to how we did it in Convoy uh, or Kubernetes distribution, right? That's that's usually where we still find the gaps in the open source community is, is at the intersection of those projects at the integration points. So we're very excited about this patch. So do Argo and Flux do two different things for CI/CD? 
Right. So um, I'm not deeply familiar with those uh, projects, but um, I believe they're sort of um, they're playing in the same space, and that's why uh, the projects uh, decided to collaborate, join forces. That makes sense. That makes sense. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to to get some insight into what you guys are doing, to hear how you're you're pushing kind of the Kubernetes story forward within your own space and your relationship to Mesa. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, Toby. Great. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. All right. Bye-bye.